Good morning, church. Open your Bibles with me to Micah chapter 6. This is the beginning of the third movement of the book of Micah. In chapter 6, Micah presents us with a court case. It's an ancient lawsuit. The Lord is the plaintiff bringing it. Judah is the defendant. And Micah is the messenger on behalf of the plaintiff. In verses 1 through 8, the Lord makes his case. And he asks for response. And Judah tries to make restitution. I try to figure out what would appease God. But it's inadequate. So the Lord tells him what he actually requires. We'll look closely at these verses today. But all of chapter 6 is this lawsuit, so we have to keep that in mind. Next week, we'll wrap up the lawsuit in verses 9 through 16, which is the sentencing or the consequences. But for now, let's stand and read Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 together. Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Please be seated, and let's pray. Lord, we come to your word now asking for your spirit to shine in our hearts and in our minds. Pray that you would illuminate this for us, that you would bring understanding, that we would mold our lives to your word so that we would look more like the image of your son. We need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. The lawsuit structure that we see here is not unique to the book of Micah. Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 50 are two other clear examples of that similar pattern. So there's an introduction that we see in all of these lawsuits, all of these various places. There's an introduction like we have here in verses one and two, summoning the different parties and calling upon creation as witness. Verse three is an interrogation of the guilty party. Verses four and five contain accusations of ingratitude where God states the benefits he's given his people. Verses 6 and 7 are a rejection of their sacrifices 
And verse 8 is a statement of what God actually requires. It's very structured. Micah's using a common framework to open the eyes of his hearers, something they'd recognize. So if they thought that the status quo in Judah was okay, that it was just fine, then this lawsuit from God says otherwise. You see, Israel and Judah were in a covenant relationship with God. So this isn't the Lord bringing a lawsuit against a random country that he doesn't have any official relationship with. This is a lawsuit over a contract, but not not just any old contract. God's not mad because Judah didn't pay for something or they failed to provide a service. God's bringing a lawsuit because the relationship is broken. The covenant had to do with God's relationship to his people. Now, I've often encouraged you on Sunday mornings during the sermon to use your imagination. So here we are again. I'm reminding you, make sure you engage your imagination when you read the word. But when you hear that this is a court case, maybe the first thing that pops in your mind is a criminal case, a judge and a criminal, God being the judge, Israel or Judah being the criminal. That's close, close in relationship priority, but not quite what's happening here. When we hear that it's a lawsuit, maybe we picture two businessmen lobbying complaints against one another or someone suing a company for damages. Again, close, but not, not quite enough. If we're looking for a modern representation of this type of relational covenant lawsuit, the closest thing that we have to it is marriage. It's the closest thing. Two people who've covenanted together to be in a relationship. That's what the covenant concerns. But now the relationship is breaking down, and so they take each other to court. It's not a perfect analogy, of course. No metaphor or analogy will ever perfectly capture any aspect of God. But it is an analogy God himself uses several times throughout the scriptures. The whole book of Hosea is about that. But it's also used by God in one of the most heartbreaking chapters in the Bible, Ezekiel 16. Here God is pictured as a husband who stumbles upon an unlovely and unloved woman who he cleans up and helps to flourish because he loves her. Listen to the words that God has for this analogous wife in Ezekiel 16, 8. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. But this unloved and unlovely woman became unfaithful. And the rest of Ezekiel chapter 16 is about that unfaithfulness and God's response as a husband to his wife. So a husband and a wife in divorce court. I think that kind of lawsuit is the closest our world comes to understanding, understanding the crumbling relationship be, between God and his people. So why bring all of this up? I think it's important that we understand the emotional impact of these verses here. 
God is not presented as a cold-hearted standoff judge and Judah as a sorry criminal. Although it's perfectly true that God is the judge and he rightly judges his people. God is not presented here as uncaring or unloving. Verses 3 and 5 both start with the phrase, O my people, which is a tender address, a loving plea. And all of this makes Judah's response in 6 and 7 that much worse. So there's two overarching questions, two overarching questions that help us outline what's happening in Micah 6, 1 through 8. Two questions. The first, what has God done? Verse 1 starts, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Now God is addressing Micah individually here. He's talking to Micah. Get up. Go to court. He's appointed Micah as his messenger in this lawsuit. The ESV says, plead your case but it's blurry in the Hebrew. The NIV is more likely when it says, plead my case. And so Micah is to plead God's case before the mountains and the hills. So in verse two, Micah starts to speak. Verse one is God's voice. Verse two is Micah's voice. The mountains and the hills are the two witnesses that God is bringing against the people of Judah. You had to have two witnesses in court. They've witnessed all the deeds of the people of Israel, of the northern and of the southern kingdoms. And now the mountains and the hills will hear God's indictment against his people. They are called here the enduring foundations of the earth. And that emphasizes their age and their qualifications to serve as witnesses. I mean, it's pretty impressive. It's an impressive court if two witnesses are the land itself, mountains and hills. Who can stand before that? But it's Israel who's called to court. The Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And that contention is a lawsuit. He's lodging a complaint against them. Verse 3 says, O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Again, the Lord's message to his people starts with this tender address, O my people. He calls them to give evidence against him. This is their opportunity. What have I done to you, God says? How have I wearied you or how have I burdened you? So if Israel really had a complaint against God or a reason for their faithlessness, now's their chance to let him know. He's calling for them to give an account. He calls them to answer him. And Pastor Andrew pointed out to me this week that if God is calling you to answer him, it's not looking too good for you. It's a scary thing. But God opens it up to his people. He's giving them a chance. What has he done? Has he really done something wrong? Has God in any way failed to live up to his side of the covenant? The answer, of course, is no. God has perfectly kept his side of the covenant. God is always perfectly faithful to his promises. Amen? 
He is always faithful to what he says he will do. If he tells his people he'll do something, he will do it. And so, the people of Judah don't respond. They don't respond after verse 3. There's nothing that they can say God has done. They recognize that there is no fault in God. He has not done anything to weary them. He has not failed in his side of the covenant. And so without hearing any response, any response from his people, God gives a short list of the ways he's been faithful to his side of the covenant. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. The Exodus event was the central divine act that God performed on behalf of his people Israel. Of course, God did many more things than that Exodus for his people. But if there was one thing those people were supposed to point to as the prime example of God's love and faithfulness to them, it was the Exodus. The basic act of grace by God on behalf of his people in the Old Testament was the Exodus. In the same way, we point to the cross as God's basic act of grace for us. Jesus did countless more things for us than that. But the cross is the central act for Christianity. So God reminds them, did I not deliver you? Did I not save you? Did I not redeem you? The Exodus represented God's love and care for his people, the groundwork of their relationship. But it also represented the basis of covenant claim. Didn't I do this for you? Don't we have a relationship now? So the Exodus was supposed to be the core of the identity of the people of Israel. God created us as a people by bringing us out of slavery. But they failed. They failed to remember what God had done for them. They failed to teach their children to pass along this identity. And in so doing, they broke the covenant. Forgetting or ignoring the Exodus was forgetting and ignoring the covenant. Just like for us, forgetting or ignoring the sacrifice of Christ is ignoring our relationship with him. But God went above and beyond for his people. He gave them good leaders, Moses, Aaron, and and Miriam. Moses was the prophet that brought the people the law and the covenant. And Aaron was the priest that acted on behalf of the people of God. Miriam might seem like the odd one out. Whenever we see statements like this where God provides leaders for his people in the Old Testament, it's always Moses and Aaron. Micah includes Miriam. And if we think in terms of the greatest things these individuals did, then then Miriam led the people of Israel into loving worship of their deliverer. In Exodus 15, we see the people coming across, after coming across the Red Sea, Miriam leading them in a song of praise. God had delivered them from Egypt, and he provided leaders for every aspect of the covenant as an intermediary from God to them in Moses, a priest for them to God, and someone to help them understand how to worship him. He had delivered them also from outside evil. Verse 5, O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him. 
people are told to remember this episode in their history when the king of Moab wanted to curse the young nation of Israel before they entered the promised land. They're on their way to Canaan, and this happens. The story is found in Numbers 22. Balak, the king, called upon the services of Balaam, a diviner, a false prophet, to curse the people of Israel. But God stepped in. You remember the story? Balaam, he's on his way to meet up with this king, Balak, to curse Israel. He's, He's riding a donkey, but his donkey won't walk. So he beats the donkey. He's not a very good guy. He beats the donkey, but it still won't move. So he beats it again. But the donkey still won't move because it sees something in the road. It sees an angel, and Balaam doesn't see this. So Balaam beats the donkey a third time. And then God allows the donkey to speak to Balaam. What have I done to you that you've struck me three times? Then my favorite part of the story happens. You'd expect Balaam to freak out because his donkey spoke to him, but he doesn't. He's so angry that he just talks back to his donkey like it's normal. He says, because you've made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand for then I would kill you. It's not funny. It's a little funny. After the exchange, Balaam is allowed to finally see the angel and understand. He's told not to curse Israel. In fact, he ends up blessing Israel three times. God delivers his people, but the kicker here is they didn't even know about it. He's working behind the scenes the whole time. Nobody in the nation of Israel is involved. It's all God. He looks out for his people because that's his side of the covenant. But he does even more than that. All that Israel had was given to them by the Lord, and they just had to be obedient. And so it was with the crossing of the Jordan River, which is what is meant here at the end of verse 5. The nation of Israel crossed from the Jordan from Shittim to Gilgal, each side of the Jordan River. And once again, the Lord parted the waters so they could cross on dry land. Interesting enough, at the end of verse 5 here, the language becomes terse, impatient. It's like God is saying, do I really need to list all these things that I've done for you? Have I not been faithful? Have I not consistently been on your side? Have I not delivered you time and time again? Does he need to recount all of his righteous acts on their behalf? No. But they are called to remember them. These are the indictment of the Lord against his people. These acts that he's performed. How often do we forget the righteous acts of the Lord? How often do we forget the things that he has done for us over and over again? How often are we unfaithful to him because of our forgetfulness? I confess this has been the case in my own heart recently. I look at my life and I only see the things that I lack. I covet and complain about the things that I don't have. And I fail to see the things God has done for me and that God is doing for me. Our hearts are constantly doing this. Did Israel really need to be reminded of all that God had done for them from God? No. 
But apparently they had forgotten because they had not made it a discipline to remind themselves. And when we move our eyes away from the work of Christ, when we move them away from the cross, they wander over to the idols that we fashion for ourselves, our own strength, our own wisdom, our own works, like we saw last week. That's what happened here to Israel. They lost track of what was actually worth living for. They started to live for themselves. They never stopped doing what the book of Judges told us they do cyclically. They never stopped doing what was right in their own eyes. All the while, God was faithful to them and patient. But now look where we are. They're invaded by their enemies, suffering injustice at the hands of the wealthy, chasing after the works of their own hands. So has God wearied them? What has God done to them except to be completely faithful to them? No, the failure, the responsibility for the broken relationship all falls at the feet of his faithless people. So what can they do to remedy it? Second, What does God require? In verses 6 and 7, Micah gives voice to the people of Israel. He represents the prevailing attitude and approach of the people to their God who is upset. This is how they try to remedy the situation. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 6 opens up with a question that helps us understand the rest of this response. With what shall I come before the Lord? With what? This single worshiper who speaks represents all of Israel. And he seems eager, he seems eager to do the will of the Lord. But he thinks he doesn't know what the Lord wants. This worshiper is willing to do a lot to placate God. He comes before him and he he bows himself low. He calls him Lord God on high. Then he starts, starts offering things, trying to probe to find out what God might like as a present. Okay, maybe burnt offerings. It's not a bad idea. Instead of a regular offering, an offering in the temple where some portions are laid aside for the priest and the one who offered to eat later, what if the, the whole offering is burnt up on the altar and dedicated to the Lord? Maybe we can up the ante, though. What if, what if we bring a calf, a year old even, not just newborns or the first fruits, but, but calves who have been fed and nourished, perfect calves with the best grain for the, for the whole year offered as a burnt offering. Would that be costly enough to please God? To make God not angry anymore? Okay, maybe God doesn't want gifts of great quality. Maybe he wants quantity. Maybe that's what he's after. Okay, so what if we bring a thousand rams as an offering, several flocks worth. It might sound absurd, but 
it would be less than 1% of King Solomon's offering to the Lord when he became king. Would a thousand rams, a great sacrifice for many families, do the job? Maybe not, maybe not a thousand rams. So what about rivers of costly olive oil, the special gift only reserved for the final, the end of the offering, poured out on top of it because it was so costly? What if we could get as much of it as we can find and give that to the Lord? Would that make things better? Okay, not the best gifts, not a thousand rams, not rivers of oil. What about our own children? Better yet, what if we bring our firstborn sons? Would that make God happy with us once again? And it's here that we, the reader, realize the people of Israel are not being sincere. They're offended that God would require anything of them. They don't believe they've done anything wrong to offend God. They don't offer these gifts in good faith. And if they are, their approach to the relationship they have with their God is all wrong. They don't know their God at all. So you can hear their complaint here. What else do you want us to do for you? How else are we supposed to prove our devotion We're willing to offer you all of these things. And we have offered them to you, yet you don't accept them. Do you really want something you never told us to sacrifice to you? Do you really just want our children? We'll give them to you if that's really what you want. We just want to make you happy with us again. We just want your blessing. We'll give you anything. This is what they say. All the while, they ignore what God has told them he wants. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And there it is. He doesn't want their sacrifices. He doesn't want their quality gifts. He doesn't want their thousands of rams and rivers of oil. And he certainly doesn't want their children. He wants their faithfulness And he wants their love. He wants them to be the people they agreed to be when they made the covenant at Sinai. They thought they could win God back, that they could bribe him with their gifts. They treated God like he was some pagan deity, like he was Baal, that they only had to appease in order for him to send rain. They thought that if they gave God the right sacrifices, that if they performed the right religious rituals, it would make him happy with them once again. That maybe he'd even stop the invasion of the Assyrians and protect them. But God is not a pagan deity who needs to be convinced or reminded of his obligations. He's not a God prone to anger that they have to periodically appease. He is Lord of the whole earth. The God of steadfast love who covenanted with them He would be their God, and they would be his people. I'm reminded here of a fight between a husband and a wife. The wife is in tears again. The husband is upset because she's crying. You see, he cheated on her for a long time. 
But he's been trying to make it right. Trying his best. He's done everything he thinks he can. He's given her everything he thinks she wants. He's bought her all kinds of fancy gifts. He got her a car. The one she always wanted. He bought her a really nice diamond necklace. What more does she want from him? But here she is in tears again. So the husband raises his voice to his wife and asks, What more can I do to show you that I'm sorry? And how does she respond? Does she want the car? Or the necklace? Or the empty promises? She tells him, love me and be faithful to me. Israel and Judah had misunderstood what God actually wanted from them. They thought that if if they got the sacrifices right, then God would finally be happy. But he really wants your obedience. He wanted their hearts in the right place. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Is God an angry wife? No. It's not a perfect analogy. Nothing ever is, right? But man, do we often think we can solve our problems if we just do some good stuff to cover up our bad stuff. That's not what God wants at all. He desires and he requires real heart change. So what was Israel supposed to do? God gives them three things that directly apply to us this morning as his people. He wants them to treat each other first with justice. Do justice. And this was so lacking in the nation of Israel and Judah that they're described as warring against the poor earlier in the book. God doesn't want their precious sacrifices. He wants them to love their neighbor as themselves. Second, he wants them to love each other sacrificially. This word in Hebrew is complex, here translated in the ESV as love kindness. Another traditional rendering is love mercy. It's an important Hebrew word that pops up a lot. And so here it is, it's hesed. Most frequently it means something like loyal or faithful love, steadfast love, covenantal love. So when it's used to describe the kind of love God has for us, it means the kind of love that will not let us go. So here it's doing double duty as it's applied to the people as a requirement. It talks about the kind of love Israel should have for God and for their neighbors. To love each other faithfully and loyally. To be merciful to each other and to be faithful to the Lord. And third and finally, he requires that his people walk humbly with him. Again, that's the traditional rendering. The closer might be something like walk carefully with your God. Both, of course, are true. A humble walk with the Lord is a careful walk with the Lord. To walk carefully with God is to be in tune with his will. A careful walk is one that seeks to do God's will above all else. So listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, Paul says. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, 
but understand what the will of the Lord is. What does God require of his people? His answer is surprisingly simple. Do justice. Do justice with each other. Love me and each other faithfully and loyally. And carefully walk with me. This is consistently God's answer throughout all of scriptures to this question. It's a repetition of the most basic confession the people of God had throughout time. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hosea 12 says, Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Jesus gives us the same exhortation in the Gospels. Matthew 22, 37 through 39 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The statement found in Micah 6, 8, maybe some of the most famous words in this book are boiled down to that. Love God supremely and others perfectly. Justice is oriented toward others. It seeks a thriving community. God tells us that he requires his people to do justice. This is the will of God for you. And he also requires that we love him and each other faithfully and loyally. Our, God, our, our love for God needs to be steadfast. Our love for each other needs to be faithful, covenantal even. This is the will of God for you. And he requires that we walk carefully with him. He wants us to seek him out, to know him more. He wants us to commune with him, to pray to him and to read his word. He wants us to worship him in the ways that he's revealed to us. This is the will of God for you. These are the things that we should be eager to do for the Lord, amen? The people of Israel misunderstood what God wanted. Did God want sacrifices, even really, really great ones? Yes, his law said he did. He did want those sacrifices, but they were never the first thing. Religious ritual, gathering together, having church, singing songs, they're all wonderful, good things we're supposed to do. But the first thing... The first thing Israel was supposed to have was covenant faithfulness, justice toward each other, and humility toward their God. And we make the same mistake. We can be tempted to think that God really wants our good works. If I just show up on Sunday, if I just do enough for the poor, if I just do enough random acts of kindness, God will look at me as a good person and he won't hold my sins against me. And that's not how this works, guys. First, we come to the Lord in repentance. Believing the gospel. Placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Asking him to to nail our sin to the cross where the sacrifice was given. To take away our sin by the blood of his son. And then, then we do the works he's prepared for us. We can't get that order confused. 
Salvation is reliant upon what comes first. God's grace must always come first. Israel had lost what was primary. And that's clear throughout the whole book of Micah. They had lost the thread. Loving God, loving his people. Have you lost what's primary? Do you believe the gospel as the foundation of your relationship with your God? You can't hope to please God on your own. There are no sacrifices you can give that will appease him. Not your money, not your time. Your good deeds will never outweigh your bad deeds. So what does God require of you? He requires the most basic things. He requires your faith in the gospel of his grace in his son alone for salvation. And he requires your faithful love for him and your faithful love for others. So I have two questions for you. First, what has God done for you? Verses three through five recount God's faithfulness to Israel. How has God been faithful to you? What has he done? What does he continue to do? When we ask that question of ourselves, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is, man, I complain way too much. How has God been faithful to you? And second, what does the Lord require of you today? Some of us need to start at the very beginning and believe the gospel and place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the most basic place. It's first base. We can't skip over it. Israel had it wrong here. They thought they could appease God somehow. Do we fall into the same trap? What does God require of you today? If it is that basic faith, I call on you right now to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Maybe it's one of these other three things that's coming to mind that's, man, I, I've stumbled, I've failed here. I, I have not been loving my neighbor as myself. I don't care about God's justice for the poor and the oppressed. Maybe it's coming to mind right now that you have kind of strayed away from God. You haven't communed with him. You don't, you don't walk humbly. You don't walk carefully. This is a time of repentance, I think, as we respond to Micah 6, 1 through 8. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes and, and ask the Lord to forgive us for the many ways that we fail to live up to his calling and ask the Lord now that he would enable you to do so joyously knowing that he will provide the way. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that we often treat you like somebody we need to just appease to make you happy with us when life seems to not be going the right way.
We confess to you that we look around us and we think that our works are enough. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness. We ask that you would give us the faith that we need. We ask that you would give us the steadfast love that we need and the desire to walk with you carefully, communing with you as often as we can because we love you. Lord, help us not to think up excuses, to scheme, to try to bribe your, your favor. Lord, help us to remember the many ways you've been faithful to us, that you have loved us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.